This is a podcast about time. The time it takes to become an artisan. Heritage. Saving to buy something you'll keep forever. Sustainability. Memories attached to clothing that you've loved and lived in. Interiors. And the longevity of friendship. To us, the true definition of luxury. I'm Lynn Coleman. Join me and my friend Jill Brown as we chat about what makes vintage so special. Welcome to A Guide to Luxury, Season 2. It was the night before Christmas Eve, and I found myself unexpectedly saying goodbye to the people I had spent every day with for the past three years. Reeling from being made redundant not once, but twice in nine short months by the same employer was deliriously debilitating. I was seven days shy of my 25th birthday and convinced this job defined my very existence. Who would I be if I wasn't broadcasting? What would I do? This was not the year of Corona, but the financial crash of 2008. And little did I know that this door closing would allow another one to flood open, giving me my actual defining moment. As the weeks merged into one another, I found solace in second-hand shopping. Browsing while broke had always been a favourite pastime of mine. For as far back as my memory allows, I have been fascinated by old things. My grandfather, historic buildings, classic movies and timeless music. But clothes, their texture, smell and stories knock all of that into a cocked hat. So, I set about writing a guide to vintage shopping 15 cities around the UK in half a year and using the other half to finish the manuscript. I felt lifted by the community. I loved walking into each store and leaving with the warmth and strength to keep going in some of my darkest hours. Publication day was a proud moment. Reading at the Edinburgh International Book Festival was a career high and doing all of that while pregnant with my first baby would give me life lessons in motherhood multitasking that I still depend on today. That baby I talk about will be 10 this coming summer. It seems rather fitting that I flick back through these formative pages for season two of our podcast, A Guide to Luxury, which will be kicking off right now. Although I can't jump on a train in City Hop like I did a decade ago, I can visit the spots where everything started. Armstrong's in Edinburgh, also known as my vintage mecca. The best place on the planet to find items steeped in history. I managed to slip away one Sunday brunch in between the umpteenth lockdown that we're going through to reacquaint myself with my first love. In my 20s, I gravitated towards sequins and fancy frocks. In this trip, I discovered my textile roots of tartan and wovens pulled me away from the glitzy past to pastures new. The structure of the menswear department seemed to be seducing me. Here, I found two new flames. A battered old barber looking for the right new home to re-wax it and a 1950s Savile Row army jacket with some gold buttons missing in action. Inside, the hand-stitched label tells me that the officer picked up his blazer from Hawks & Co Limited, number 1 Savile Row, W1 London, by appointment of the late King George V on Hogmanay, 1952. His name? M.G.H. Gordon, written in faded black ink along with the date. You'd be forgiven for thinking that it'd fallen off the runway circa now, never mind 1952. 
The craftsmanship in this piece is palpable. Coupled with the knowledge that I'm dressing in a slice of history makes me stand a little bit taller every time I'm wrapped inside it. I wonder what happened to Officer Gordon while it slung over my shoulders. Was he alive during the pandemic of the Spanish flu? If conscription meant that he had to go to war, and how old was he when he collected that coat on that cold New Year's Eve? Did war change him? And what was it like living post-pandemic? I'll never know the answers. And it's probably for the best, because my final thoughts rest with seeking approval at me painting his coat with a pair of fishnets. I do very much hope that he'd be in agreement with such choices. This is exciting, isn't it? Because it's so... Uh, this new episode is, or this new series is going to be about this experience that you had sort of a decade ago. I know, a decade ago, Jill. Anyway, it's nice to have you back. I've missed you. I've missed you too. And now we're doing it slightly differently, aren't we? We're, you're at home and I'm at home. We're not together, which no, is but very I can, weird. I can see you though, which is nice. But yeah, it does feel weird not having you sitting across the couch. But yeah, reading that little intro, I can't quite believe that a decade has flown past as fast as it as it's gone. But taking us back to the opening paragraph of that, December 2008, you had just flown off to Australia and left me, you big swine, while I was on the sinking ship that was... Titanic slash talk 107. I, I remember you phoning me and being like, this is it. This is it. It's going. And be like, oh, I'm, so, you know, and I, it was, it, you know, I think you were late at night and I was early in the morning. And yeah, I, I remember it so, so clearly, so, so clearly. And, you know, it, it makes me think about, or there's so, such parallels with what happened with me last year. You know, you talk about that space and not knowing what to do and who were you if you weren't broadcasting. And, you know, when I was made redundant in August and we were talking about who am I when I don't, you know, I've worked solidly since I was 21. You know, there's it's quite interesting that we've both had the same experience 10 years apart. Yeah. And also, I think what's really interesting about this is that, of course, COVID has meant that we are now living in a world that we had not foreseen. But we have come through crashes before. We have come through giant obstacles, redundancies, cycles where there's boom and bust. And right now we're in that horrible, sticky situation where people don't know whether or not there are going to be jobs and all that kind of stuff. And so reading back over the opening chapter of of A Guide to Vintage felt like taking a lovely dagger to the heart because I really remember, I viscerally remember how scared I was. You know, I was, I was, I was 24. I was terrified. And you, you know, had, had just gone away too. And that was, that was pretty scary. I remember, I remember when we said goodbye to each other in Edinburgh, we went for lunch at a little place called Treacle, um, just on Broughton Street. I've never told you this before. You went down Broughton Street and I went up to go back to Gorgie and I just sobbed from there to the bus stop. Because I was, ju- I was just like, what am I going to do without her? She is my right hand, and she's moving halfway across the world. And then I got made redundant. It was terrifying, and I, I don't use that word lightly. I understand how people are feeling right now because I lived it ten years ago, and I—it's bizarre. I can't believe that we're here again, 
and that I'm falling back into the same community that pulled me out of the last recession. But you went to Australia. Why did you go? Why did you do that? I can't remember. I had a really good friend from university. We had a sort of off and on friendship, which is now off. We'd sort of met up. She'd come to Edinburgh for a meeting for work. And she said, oh, I've just taken a job in Perth, West Australia. I don't suppose you fancy coming. And we had sort of thought that the writing on the wall was there for talk, hadn't we? So that was like the the August, I think. I was like, actually, do you know what? I'm really tempted. And I remember going to see my mum. My mum worked at the end of Waterloo Place in Edinburgh. And I remember going to see her and being like, I think I might go to Australia. And her thinking I was totally mad that I'd got this thing that doesn't exist, which is a paid job and what you want to do so close after graduating. And then I decided I'd had enough of that and I was just going to go to Australia. Yeah. Um, I mean, for people that don't know... Jill and I had a baptism of fire at the tender age of 21. We met each other from a radio station um, that had newly been created by then the wireless group, but it's what everybody now recognises as talk sport and talk radio. But 10 years ago, uh, when everything was shut down, we had been on air for three years I think February 2006, so just about. Yeah. Um, And that was our, you know, you'd come straight out of uni and got the job. And I'd come out of university, decided not to do my honours year in journalism. And then I went to Northern Ireland and did a sort of six month stint in radio, as in, you know, like a music radio on a commercial station. And then I bombarded the the launch team at Talk 107 and that's where we met and that's how this all happened so yeah your mother saying you're a producer for an all-speech radio station what are you doing but you and I we could feel it we'd already we'd already gone through through a round of redundancies things had already changed the financial climate in 2008 if anybody remembers you know the property prices had boomed and busted it was like that it was crashing around us and everybody was being laid off left right and center and here we were at this radio station that was hemorrhaging a million pounds a year we hemorrhaged three million pounds in all speech broadcasting and when I think about it now I think about how brave the investors had been to to give us this gift because speech radio was bloody expensive and the BBC get to do it beautifully because it has to be financed, you know, and and doing that at a commercial rate, all speech takes a little bit of time and a nurturing of of sponsorship and 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 people coming in and advertising, and we, you know, like we were just kind of cold calling people. The poor sales team had no sales figures to go to anybody with. We were just selling the concept on a on a wing and a prayer, and our our former boss who is the almighty Mike Graham of talk radio fame. He was our, he was our, he was our boss. Not initially, but he was the guy that, you know, eventually turned it into the the radio station that we became senior producers at. And I had lunch with him when I was pregnant with Ruben, who's baby number three. So that's like, what, two years ago. And he said something, I don't know if I've told you this, he said something to me that was really, really interesting. We went out for lunch when I was down in London and he was like, you know, when you're building a station like this, 
your rate jar figures at whatever percentage they are. We were nuts to try and project and say that our listenership was going to be, I think it was at like 10% or something like that of, of, you know, whatever it is that we wanted. He was like, you know, you'd be lucky to get 1% of that 10%. And so he gets it now, you know, uh, having had this baptism of fire. But that's where we, that's where we started. And my God, the people that we worked with, Jason Byrne, Rona Cameron, you know, the the talent that came through every festival, we had the hottest tickets sitting beside us. We were producing shows for them. And we were kids. I know, it's 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 insane, isn't it? And and I think like the sort of bed of our friendship was the fact that I did breakfast and you did evening. So we both were free in the middle of the day. And I remember standing. So my first job, I mean, I mean, I should never have got the job because my phone number was wrong on my CV. So, um, I mean, oh, luck doesn't come into that one. That the, the guy who gave me the job decided to email me at the time when email really wasn't massive and be like, um, your phone number's wrong. Um, but my, I've worked on the sports show, which is hilarious on a Saturday for anybody who knows me and anyone who wants to make any assumptions, you're absolutely correct to make those assumptions. Um, <laughs> and we, we started the show and... Um, one of the presenters had to teach me how to write cricket scores because I had like I had no idea how and I was like how have I got this job and so you got that job because nobody wanted to work a Saturday afternoon and I got the job because nobody wanted to work a Saturday morning that's how we got the jobs and then and then we very swiftly were moved on from that started working through the week and all of that sort of stuff but I remember sitting there I've gone from student radio six picoseconds ago to an actual radio station we just had to learn on the job. And I'm so thankful that not long after starting, our very good friend Cassie, who lives in Australia. Everybody goes to Perth. My best friend's there. You went there. Cassie lives there now. Yeah. I I learned so much from her because speech radio is massive in Australia. And I was so lucky that I worked with her. But when I think about phoning people, particularly sort of for me, phoning people at quarter to six in the morning, trying to get them to come on the radio station in 20 minutes time phoning ministers like government ministers phoning I know. Like, yeah absolutely i remember oh god do you remember this so when you did breakfast so i did the comedy sports show which i absolutely loved which was called the kickabout and you can make any assumptions that you want about me too i of course i'm not a sporty person but i fell in love with this concept because it was basically you know like a, a silly piss take of of a football show um, so we would get sportsmen, ex-sportsmen, current sportsmen, pundits coming through the door. And it was just the most fun show that I've still to this day that I've ever worked on. It was bloody brilliant. Gordon Dallas was a comedy genius too. And he would write these incredible sketches. But I had a book because like you're saying, this wasn't, this was 10 years ago. And when I think about technology and how much that's changed, I still worked very much so on paper notepads like so I had a, I had a special book that was my producer book that I had every number you know every contact everything that I needed was in this 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 book and each pr- producer had their own version of that and I jumped on the number 22 from Gorgie into the guile one day and I left my book on the bus at the back of the number 22 and my details were inside the book so that if it ever got lost it would be returned to me and the bus driver drove past on his way round and jumped in 
and gave me the book and knocked the door of the radio station because we were in like this kind of, you know, custom built new, it was kind of like a hangar, wasn't it? It was like an aircraft hangar that had been kitted out into made to be made into a radio station. But we were basically in an industrial estate. And so he knocked the door and I came out because at that time of night, the, the full staff would be gone you know, like around about seven o'clock, everybody would go and you'd be left with one newsreader and the, the presenting team of that of that show. So it was always nice and quiet. So I ran out, knocked the door because you became the receptionist, the presenter, the producer, the tea maker, whatever it is that needed to be done, that's what you did. Ran out, opened the door and this bus driver was like, I think that you'll want this back. And I was like, oh, my book, thank you so much. Oh my God, thank you so much. And he was like, love, you've got the numbers of Hearts and Hibs and Celtic and Rangers and St. Minute, like the whole SPL's phone number is in this book. You might want to not leave it on the bus. I'm like, thanks. Yeah. so lucky. (laughs) I know. Between the two of us, honestly. But that's youth and that's mistake and that's... But I never... I'm grateful to talk with Seven on so many levels because it brought me some of the best friendships in my life, yours, Cassie's, and it, but it taught me so much, so, so much. And then to hear, obviously, that terrible sadness that it was closing, but also know that I was 9,000 miles away whilst that was happening and you were going to be on your own. And technology was different. You know, Skype was in its infancy, like laptops were like this thick, like really thick. And it was just, it wasn't as straightforward to keep in touch when you think now that we carry that ability to talk to people. Well, look look at us right now. Not only are we able to see each other, but we're recording in high quality for our podcast and we're 60 miles apart. I know. Um, and, and, and we were without all of that and you were without your support network. And then, yeah, you were just sort of left. And, and from that, you built vintage in the start of a completely different career. Yeah, and I, I'm i not going to say that it was easy, but going back to the radio station, there was one thing that we did learn very early on, and that was you had to get off your ass and do what needed to be done. And if that meant, seriously, if that meant that there was a jobby stuck in the U-bend and it needed to be fixed, then you would go and you would plunge the jobby in the U-bend and, and fix it. All the way, you know, to did you need to make 14 cups of tea for your guests to the really, really difficult stuff of producing a show, right? And the thing that I didn't take for granted, but the, the sparkle had come off of everything because we were made redundant, was the amount of people that we'd met in three years and the wonderful, diverse nature of a contact book of a 25-year-old that actually... These days, if you were leaving university, wouldn't happen that like that, you know, because you go into a job if you could find a job. You know, it's bloody tough now. You know, we had this wonderful woman called Jenny Brown, who is a incredible book agent here in Edinburgh. She's kind of like the matriarch of of publishing in Scotland, and Jenny would send us authors of hers that were being published. And I would talk to them on the radio show. So I went from producing this sports show to then presenting the mid-morning to afternoon show. And in the middle of that, we would we would have a you know a, an hour where we would interview an, an interesting person. And so Jenny would send me lots of authors. And 
when I was made redundant and I was feeling really, really scared, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to just cast my net out and I'm going to take some time and I'm going to go and, go and ask people that have lived a little bit longer than me, what what should I do? And it was the first time I'd ever coined the phrase of falling back into your network, you know, like like fishing. Cast your net out because you've done some work and then see who can help you. So I went to see Jenny and we were talking about things that, you know, really weren't going to work, you know, like, a, like maybe I could start a blog and maybe that could have worked. But you know what I mean? There was, there was just some things. And at the end of the meeting, she said to me, oh, that dress that you're wearing is really, really lovely. You know, where's it from? And I just was like, I was in New York last year um, and I was at a flea market and it's from this, you know, that it was freezing and there was a mirror and I was in my pants and in an underground car park. And so the dress is from there. It's from the 80s and blah, 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 blah. And I was telling her about it. She was like, you need to write about this. This is what you're passionate about. And I had foolishly disregarded any notion of fashion journalism and any notion of, of writing about clothing because I'd come through a very Scottish system of I went to uni to become a journalist and we didn't talk about features when you were learning. It was, it was you know, you were going to be a political journalist or you were going to do blah. And so I just kind of bit my lip and then went, fell into broadcasting because I didn't want to write about that stuff. And then when we got to Talk 107, the famous Scotty McClue said to me constantly, Sprite, Sprite. Look at what you're wearing. Look at the lipstick. Look at that dress. Look at your shoes. This is what you are. And I'd be like, yeah, okay, can you go and get your show done? And I need to phone a guest and like, aha, great. I love that you love my shoes, but let's get to work, okay? When she said that, I was like, okay, everybody has been telling me this and I've been pulling away from it because I didn't think that there was a way I could make a career out of it. So I said to her, how do I do this? And she gave me the best advice, which was, if you could get a little bit of publicity for a concept wrapped around this book, we could probably get interest from a publisher. And I already had the, the tools, which was exactly what we're talking about for Vintage. I just loved it. You know, I, I would, whenever I was feeling down, whenever I was feeling happy, whenever there was a birthday or a Christmas, I would go vintage shopping or I would go secondhand shopping. I love flea markets and I love charity shops. And so that was the start of that. And you you were, you know, on the other side of the world enjoying summertime. And I was in the bleakest winter of 2008 going into 2009. And I had no money, like none, none, no job. And when we did get the the confirmation of the book being done, you know, everybody has this airy-fairy idea that when you have a book deal, you've made money. That's not true. <laughs> it's really not true. So I had to basically work out how I did this book for a year and and take it like, right, okay, hopefully there'll be money at the end of it. There wasn't, by the way, just so you know, because I got up the duff and then I became a mother. So, you know, Gabriel didn't pay me. He's the worst boss in the whole entire world. But that's how it all began. And Doing that was the most freeing experience because I travelled around the UK with nothing, like no money, and 
ended up, um, it was really, really wonderful. And I should thank them from the bottom of my heart now. So TransPennine um, Railways and Virgin Rail and all, basically all the train operators up and down the UK. I approached them and said, listen, I'm writing this book. I write a column. Would you be able to, in exchange for a, you know, a, a press deal, would you be able to you know, help me out with press tickets to get on the trains? And they all just said yes. So the trains didn't cost me any money. And I went and packed a lunch like I was going to school. I would pack a lunch, start at 6 a.m., and then I'd end up in Sheffield or I'd end up in Nottingham or I'd end up in Manchester or Newcastle or wherever it was for the day with my packed lunch. And I'd run around these shops and then I'd get back on the train um, in time for dinner. And that's that's how the vintage book started. And then I would call you going, ah, what am I doing? What am I doing? But I remember because I came home and... So the thing is with Lynn is she's she's not great at giving you big news in, in, in appropriate places. So I was back and I was working at STV and the book was just, and you were doing stuff at the hour at that time, and the book was just sort of coming to fruition at that point. Uh, yeah, we must have been about a year on by that point. So we, we bumped into each other in STV and, and, and I was like, all right, okay. And so I gave her a lift home and I had this old Rover. We called him Roy of the Rovers, this big old Rover. And I drove her back across the M8. So it was winter again by this point. It was snowing. So I pulled up in Gorgie to drop Lynn home. She was like, oh, by the way, um, I'm pregnant. And I was like, wonderful. Lynn, see, when people are driving you in a car in bad weather, the fact that you've got even more precious cargo is something that you should tell them before you travel on the motorway. It kind of ruined my, oh, my God, how exciting moment. Because I was like, oh, my, what if we'd crashed? What if something had happened? We didn't. We were fine. That baby He's will be tempting. He's fine. But I suppose this is the thing, isn't it? Is that, 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 you know, in moments of desperation, creativity comes out. And the moment of, well, what, if things have gone wrong, what's the worst that could happen? And as you all know, that's what's happened, what happened with A Guide to Luxury Cashmere. You know, so now we're on season two. So this is our introduction to season two. So Lynn and I are going to revisit the cities of her first book, which is now a decade old. And we are going to look at the amazing stores that are there and talk about amazing stories. But we're also going to talk to some amazing people, aren't we? We are. The backbone of uh, Girls Guide to Vintage was that I city hopped around these 15 cities, but in the back of every section, there was someone who I interviewed. So the CEO of Coco de Mer is in there. Wayne Hemingway was one of them in the Newcastle section. And so Jill and I thought it would be nice uh, in season two to introduce the little black book of of extended friends and family, I suppose, right? And they they will they will take our hand and they will be our eyes and ears in each city. And we hope that even though we can't go anywhere or do anything, that over the next 15 weeks, we will feel like we are getting to travel around the UK in the safety of our own home. Exactly. And you will get, and you'll have a list of places to shop when we get to travel again. And if vintage shopping isn't your thing, and it should be, it feels so timely at the moment. We're talking about the legacy of COVID and how is this an opportunity to change the way we live? I read a fascinating article by Mary Portis about, she thinks the future is going to be this kindness economy where we don't think about 
how much we're going to buy but where we buy it from and I think vintage shopping and charity shops is going to be at the heart of that so it feels very timely so but we want to talk to you about the vintage shops but we also want to tell you where you should eat and drink and party and have fun in cities because hopefully come the summer I think Britain will be open to us again the world might not and there's incredible places and Obviously, we're going to start with places we love, like Edinburgh and Glasgow and places that we know really well. But we will take you right across the UK. And, and you know, there's there's fantastic shopping in places you wouldn't necessarily think. Obviously, yeah. you go to London, but we'll go to Newcastle and we'll go to Sheffield. And so our hope is that we just bring you a little bit of inspiration and maybe you'll get to hop on the train and go somewhere for a couple of days and just indulge in it. And like everything there'll be stories in the clothes you know that's that's what was so wonderful about Kashmir it was it was about clothes and it's about us and you know our lives and our friendship and now we're both on the same continent um so yeah we really hope that you enjoy it because and you'll just get to meet some absolutely incredible people who you will then be able to go and learn more about you know our guests have all got profiles they've got you can follow them on Instagram or on the radio or so yeah it's a sort of all started with a tiny radio station in South Gyle in Edinburgh but it will take you across Britain and across incredible people majority women incredible women that you will meet so we really hope you enjoy it yeah I I cannot wait to get started the people that we're going to to talk to are genuine friends and people that I absolutely adore. So we've got Zara coming on, uh, who we'll talk about later, but she's she's just the most wonderful. I met her at STV years back and she's just this, she's a force. And then there's Hayley and Dundee, who um, you guys may have seen on Netflix, Alexa Chung's Next in Fashion. So Hayley will be talking all things Dundee. And then there is my little tangerine dream in Sherry, who is forever yours betty on instagram and yeah i just the ball will be rolling and also this is this is a little bit different this time around because we do want this to be interactive and if there are places that you think we should know about then please feel free email us and we'll build a community together and we'll support each other and we'll we'll help connect that because this has been an absolute bitch hasn't it and if we can help each other business-wise and if we can shine the spotlights on the places that we love, if there's a great place for a hot chocolate in Newcastle, then tell me and I'll tell everybody else. And we can, yeah, we can just start the conversation. And that that's the great thing about Vintage, that it's a community and it has always been a community. And it's one that when you become part of it, it gets under your skin and you sweat into the material and it never leaves you. 